Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Ilana Levin. This is a comics podcast, and this is the comics podcast for people who are true connoisseurs of comics podcasts. That's right. Today's guest is, in fact, the best comics podcaster uh, out there, and it is Jay Edidin of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. He is joining me to talk about the X-Men. I know, such a shocking question or theme. Um, for those of you who don't already listen to Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, um, I will give you the brief Jay edit in bio. Jay is a reasonably professional writer, editor, and podcaster, an occasional performer, and a fledgling New Yorker. He co-wrote Thor, Metal Gods for Serial Box. Elsewhere in the Marvel Universe, he's the writer of X-Men Marvel Snapshots. The Cyclops issue is what we'll be discussing a lot today. And uh, Jay is also a minor villain on Earth 92131 and marginally internet famous as half of the podcast Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thank you so much for having me. I, I feel like you've, you've raised the bar for me really high and now I'm going to just stumble over words continually. I find that hard to believe, but... I will humor you because I'm telling you, like, I um, I think like your podcast becoming a thing was one of the things that made me realize that I needed to get graphic policy radios production levels up a notch and have like greater preparation and structure for our episodes. What, what year did Jay and Miles explain the X-Men launch? Um, 2014, I think. Yeah, that sounds about right. So, so yeah, Graphic Policy Radio began in 2012. And let me tell you, listeners, don't go back and listen to the early episodes. Um, so if anyone doesn't already listen to Mike's Explain the X-Men, it's a podcast in which they explain the X-Men because it's about time someone did. Uh, you know, very different format, obviously, from Graphic Policy Radio. But you guys brought such a level of tightly edited banter and like planning and thoughtfulness and just good production values that it just really made me be like, fuck, I got to get my act together. So thank you for helping me be a better podcaster. Thank you so much. And I should say that that really the the credit there is is to our, our first producer and our mentor, Bobby Roberts, who very much is the reason we were able to set that bar going in. Oh, that's true. You guys, I mean, also you guys had a producer and I didn't have one until I hired my brother recently. So, <laughs> but, um, so yeah, I, uh, I'm a longtime fan, obviously, of, of the show. And, and Jay's been on my podcast before to talk about Daredevil, of course. Uh, but I have not had you on the show at any point prior to this to talk about your own uh, writing specific. And also you were on to talk about um, harassment and abuse in the comics industry a couple months back. But I have not had you on to talk about your own work before. Um, and the, the fact that you pretty recently had the Marvel Snapshots uh, sing, single issue out about Cyclops was like the perfect excuse I needed to have you come on the show and talk with me about the X-Men because uh, that's one of my great interests. So I'm so um, glad to be back. Yay. So yeah, tell us how did tell us what is the Marvel Snapshots uh, comic series and, and where does this uh, Cyclops book fit into it? So the Snapshots books are all one-shot issues set in the Marvels, it's Marvel, plural Marvels, um, universe, which is, is is a sort of weird thing to describe because it's technically, I believe, the same universe designation as the main Marvel universe, but Marvels is a series that Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross did um, and I think the 80s or 90s, I should know the year, I feel a little ridiculous that I don't, of, of the rise of superheroes from the point of view 
of a photojournalist. And the Marvels, this, and then there's there's a sequel called Eye of the Camera, um, mm-hmm. and they're both excellent. And if you if you haven't read them, um, anyone listening, you should. They're tremendously good, and they're also really really kind of central comics in in the ways that the Marvel universe and the superhero comics and superhero storytelling in general has evolved. Like there are very specific pivot points there. Mm-hmm. Snapshots is a series curated um, and and basically guest edited by Kurt Busiek, who's the writer of, of the original Marvel's comics. And each issue looks at a different superhero or superhero team from the point of view of a non, non-hero, of a character who's reacting to them or who's you know sucked into their things or who's just observing them as a regular human being. The issue that I did sort of inverts that formula. It's technically the X-Men issue, but the team that it focuses on in terms of the rise of heroes is the Fantastic Four. And the reason for that is that the point of view character in it is um, a young Scott Summers, Cyclops, before he gets his powers. I love it. I really do. It's it's such a smart way to combine uh, the format of the Marvel's format with being able to give like a you know, of giving like a you know a regular person on the ground view of the of the heroes, while also like putting it within the realm of the mutant context, basically. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, so how did the project come together? I mean, obviously, you and Kurt have known each other for a bit, and everybody knows you're like the Cyclops guy. Um, but, uh, but how did how how did these uh, how did this team up originate? Yeah. So I've known Kurt for me forever. Um, he was literally the first um the first creator who I worked directly with when I started as an assistant editor a million or so years ago. And we've we've stayed in pretty close touch. He's been on our show a couple times and we've talked a lot about the X-Men. So he has a fair idea of where I'm coming from in talking about characters and and as a writer as well. And he he reached out to me about this. I had no idea about it. And honestly I had always sort of figured that if I were in a position to pitch to Marvel, I would very specifically not pitch any Cyclops stuff. Because, I mean, anyone as anyone who listens to my podcast knows, Cyclops is my favorite character. He's a character I identify very, very closely with. And I, I, I it, it just felt like it would be, it would be, you know, kind of bad business to go in and be like, yes, this thing that I'm a fan of and, and, and notorious as a fan of, give me the reins to it. Um, and yeah. I promise I won't just just be incredibly self-indulgent, but also because a lot of the the larger stories that I could think of and sort of the the arcs didn't really center around Cyclops. So that kind kind of came out of the blue, and it was super exciting. It was it was really amazing. And um, I, our editor at Marvel found um, or, or suggested Tom and Chris for the art, and once they. Once, once I'd seen Tom's work, like it was so obvious that he was absolutely the right artist for the book. Um, and this is Tom. Um, I'm sorry, my brain just fell out. It's my Tom, ear. Riley. Tom Tom Riley. Yes, that's mm-hmm. it. And Chris O'Halloran. Yeah, it's really beautiful art, um, and it works really well. I think for the sort of Marvels, it's sort of like, did this happen ten years ago? Did this happen in? the 60s who can say ambiguous past kind of a aesthetic yeah that's the thing that i really love that tom does if you look at his superhero stuff it's really really hard to pin down to a specific era not not in in in, in not because it's so far out there but because it's it's got this kind of 
ageless, timeless quality. And it, it, it has a lot of very obvious kind of nods to the original stuff and the 60s stuff without really being rooted there. Yeah, it really throws the needle quite well in that. Um, and I, it's it's so funny when you talked about like, you know, being concerned about pitching on the one of the topics that you're closest to, because that's ex- exactly what I was thinking about, like coming into this was, it feels like comics has a weird relationship with how we, uh, how fans approach the things that we love. Like, um, you know, there's a narrative where it's like, oh, yes, creators are all, we're all fans. We all started off as fans. But then it's like, yeah, but if you're like too fanish, then clearly you're not going to want to have any kind of conflict for the character. You're going to want to just have it be like a, you know, everything's fun for them. Nothing, no, no conflict, no drama um, or self-indulgent, like you said, I, you know, and so um, I, I love that that Kurt asked you to do to, to, to do sort of the Cyclops perspective story. Um, because it's sort of counter to those, I I don't know, negative stereotypes that I've sort of seen revisited in other contexts. Yeah, I don't entirely disagree with those. And I have I have a reason for that. And that's as someone who's coming in as both a fan and a professional. And that's that as an editor, finding enough distance from something that you care really, really deeply and are really personally invested in to tell a story that's going to resonate with other people and is going to have broader appeal can be really challenging. Like, I was lucky with Snapshots. Snapshots was a story where I could use, and I it, I was really reluctant to, and Kurt really kind of had to, had to prod me into doing this in the second and third and fourth drafts of it, where I could actually use a lot of my perspective and draw a lot on not only my read of the character, but my own experiences. Um, but... A lot of the time, you know, you know those arcs where, where it's clear that it's someone's favorite character and they've got a super specific read on the character. And it's like instead of watch, instead of reading an X-Men story that's for you, for the readers, you're reading someone's story that they very much wrote for themselves mm-hmm. about what this character looks like to them. Sometimes that works really well. Often it doesn't. Yeah. I think the fear that sometimes people have is that people who are fans who are writing characters that they love are not going to want to have anything bad happen to them. And I think that's sort of a misplaced concern. Yeah, I feel like those those people have had no contact with with the fan fiction community or with fan fiction ever. (laughs) Yes, that would not surprise me. Um, I mean, you know, there is the trope that like, oh, yeah, this group of some some fans, they just want everything to be like. They're, they don't like conflict. They don't like bad things happening to characters. Uh, but I don't think those are the people who actually are going to try to write an actual comic in a professional context. I think it. I think it varies. And I think. I think on the other hand, having writers who don't like conflict and like shaping stories in other ways is an incredibly valuable thing that there's way too little of in superhero comics right now. Well, definitely. Yeah, that's something that the current the current X Men team has actually talked a lot about in terms of wanting to give kind of the characters in this line and the center of this corner of the Marvel universe that tends to be centered around tragedy, just a chance to be really unmitigatedly happy for a while. Well, so I, I, I want to push back on the notion that that's not conflict though. Like they, they're not being tortured. They're not being like, it's not the usual hellscape where the only things that happen to mutants are bad. 
but it's not like there's no conflict. Like even in a in a positive, you know, even if people are in a positive context, they're still dealing with conflict if they're going to be moving towards growth. And there is growth like that is happening. Uh, you know, characters trying to build different kinds of relationships with each other, rehabilitating people. Um, and I'm I'm, refi- I'm I'm speaking okay. of the you know Dawn of X comics for anyone. Yeah, who's fair not. enough for a, for a broad definition of conflict. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not talking about you know like I'm not I'm definitely not someone who's mostly interested in superhero stories for the fist fights. Like I'm I'm <laughs> deeply invested in the soap opera and the political par- par- parables, but. You know, I, 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 I've loved and I've done a number of episodes of the show about like, you know, Dawn of X and Hox Pox and stuff like that, because it's giving the characters something interesting and different and deeper than um, folks had kind of been allowed to do before. Yeah, it's it's breaking. It's it's both a more tightly knit line and one that's broken off further from the overarching universe than I, it's been in in. Maybe ever. I mean, the the only other crossover event or era I can think of is that's that seamless is the one when it was the Simonsons and Chris Claremont and they were all sharing an office. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, folks should definitely check out the J.M. Miles Explain the X-Men uh, holiday, winter holiday special, because that was an excellent episode of podcasting and your interviews with Teeny Howard and Leah Williams and... And um, and Avita Ayala talking about their work on Hawks Pock on Dawn of X Tom X Men comics was just really excellent. Um, I definitely enjoyed that as well as the Pierre Corbeau Awards <laughs> for the finest in X Men X Mening of the year. Um, great episode, but yeah, like I I, I think that um, there is a really we people who are fans of particular characters are working on them. Like there's a balance between the sort of weird sadism you sometimes see versus like trying to tell something interesting, learn something new or have them grow in some way through conflict. Yeah. I think there's a popular fiction in writing and especially in, in genre writing and in, in superhero genre stuff that the only way to tell a good story about a character is to put them through hell, which is I think again, pretty much a fiction. Yeah. So in this story, uh, Cyclops, however, doesn't ha- ha- has a some days that are good and some days that are bad. <laughs> I don't know if he um, actually technically has any good days. I was thinking about that earlier because one of the Corbo awards we have is the Cyclops has a good day award because I'm a dork, and I don't think I I think I eventually decided that snapshots didn't qualify because he has okay days but no actual good days in it. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I guess I can see that. Like, he's, like, learned something, had a meaningful experience, but he's not like, this was easy. (laughs) Yeah, his meaningful experiences don't tend to be particularly pleasant. Poor Scott. At least at at that stage in his life. I mean, later on, there will be all sorts of weird sex with cosmic entities on buttes and stuff. God bless him. Um, And for giving us the opportunity to make jokes about butte sex. Right? It writes itself. I mean, Claremont had to know, I'm assuming, or else why choose that word? I hope so. <laughs> um, so in this story, you have, we have the story of sort of Cyclops and how, of, and it's the sort of thing where like, as soon as I read the concept, I was like, oh, of course he was, which was Cyclops as a boy, when he learns about the Fantastic Four, is like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. And I don't, 
and and of course he thinks that and like goes and like tr it really tries to learn about them and emulate reed richards etc and i don't think i'd seen anybody until now notice that cyclops's childhood is the opposite of the origins of the fantastic four much how like we've talked about on my show about how um a negative man is like the fantastic four as horror as body horror like Cyclops is the fantastic Cyclops's childhood is the Fantastic Four as like the way life kind of really is, sort of. <laughs> kind of. Um, how, how did you get that idea? That's fucking brilliant. So, as soon as Kurt pitched me the idea, which was Cyclops as a kid in the orphanage reacting to the rise of superheroes, I pretty much knew where I wanted to go with it. Um, which were I, I knew two things. The first one was that it had to be the Fantastic Four. And that it had to open with the crash, because I'd been I'd been thinking about it, and I'd been I'd been I'd been looking at 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 parallels, and I realized you can make a first page, which is what we ended up doing, and have it look like it's the Fantastic Four, and have it actually be the Summers family about to crash in their plane, because. It starts exactly the same way. It starts with four people in a cockpit and a sudden flash of light. Yeah. And it's not only four people in the in a cockpit, it's four people with the same balance of gender and hair color. <laughs> which is a really, really great parallel to have if again you're 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 doing that gag with, with the comics bait and switch. Oh god. That's so, so real. So there was that. And there so I, I figure there was that. But the bigger thing is that the Fantastic Four are all about family. They are the science adventure team, which is cool and which he would have been super into. He was a kid who was obsessed with planes, obsessed with space. That stuff's old canon. But they're also, they're a family. And like them being a family and getting through stuff as a family is central to their identity. And it's central to their public identity when they, when they appear in the Marvel Universe. And this is a kid who has, as far as he knows, lost his entire family, who doesn't have a ton of memory of them, but who we've seen through the years, you know, just obsessively clinging to that and seeking it. And so he would he would see you know, he'd see this group of people and there'd be, there'd be the parallels that would that, that would click without him really realizing because he doesn't have any conscious memory of the crash or anything. But there's also the fact that they are this this intensely tight family unit. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think like, you know, also just sort of seeing what kind of um, a role model he would identify in Reed. Um, and I think some of Reed's flaws are things that like a young Cyclops would 100% have not noticed. Like it just wouldn't even be on the radar. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. One of the things that I, I talked I've talked about in context of this comic is that in a lot of ways, Reed is to the Cyclops in this story as the character Cyclops has been to me over time. He's someone Scott can look at, and the Fantastic Four in general, and realize, not necessarily knowing why or what, that he recognizes something of himself reflected in that he's never really seen before, that he's never really had any kind of mirror or identification with before. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I really think that's an amazing insight from the story. Um, 
And like, I have their, I'm just trying to think like canonically, you know, we, we, all, we have the X-Men and the Fantastic Four in conflict a lot in recent years. I, I, I would love to sort of see like what Reed Richards would think um, if he knew the, this story of, of Scott's youth, you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I think one of one of the nice things about how this ties into later continuity is that I can be reasonably certain that it's not something Scott would ever tell him. <laughs> or probably yeah. anyone else. Yeah. Because it's personal and private and he's not like like that. It's really, really personal. And he tends to keep the parts of his childhood and his life that he remembers pretty close to the chest. Yeah. I, and, you know, we understand why, right. certainly through the story yeah. and context. You know, I, the other thing that was so impressive to me is you're, like, telling this really emotionally gratifying, complete story, and it's, like, a one-off single issue. Like, are there things that you had wanted to include but you knew were going to just break the kind of complete format to, if you had thrown them in? Not really. I had originally wanted to go a little bit deeper into the orphanage, but... That wasn't really what the story was about. And it's such, such a can of worms that even prying it open a little bit would have really changed the focus and, and unbalanced the whole thing. Short stories are kind of, at least in terms of fiction, my my native language. They're what I write when I'm when I'm writing non-comics for the most part. Mm-hmm. And they they have a structure and a rhythm and variation that I really love. Yeah, so this is sort of applying the same logic to a comics to a comics script, so right. to speak. One of the th- things that I loved in this was uh, at a certain point in the story, you know, like Scott is like an early is someone who's an early uh, admirer of the Fantastic Four. Like they're in the news, and he's like, "Holy shit, this is my this is this is for me." Right. And you know, the rest of the world is still sort of trying to figure out what they think about it. And then at a certain point in the in the issue, the bullies start wearing the Fantastic Four t-shirts. Yeah, so all uh, of the kids are. It's not just the bullies. They're just there. Okay. The Fantastic Four go from having secret identities to being incredibly popular and basically kind of the it kids of the Marvel Universe incredibly fast in canon. Um, mm-hmm. So we just kind of went there with the comics too. But I, I also think it's a great reflection of how new things in culture work, mm-hmm. right? Like at first somebody on the margins identifies and loves something, and then next thing you know it's become so ubiquitous that people have embraced it who might even be at odds with the substance of the thing itself. Yeah, I mean I think I think all the kids are kind of picking it up at the same time. Scott's just really fixating it on fixating on it at a degree of depth and in a direction that not many others are. Or actually, oh, oh, I just remembered there was a scene that I wanted to do that was cut, that there wasn't, there didn't end up being space for. I forgot about that. Um, Dude. Which was was kids playing Fantastic Four on the playground and Scott asking them what they were playing and them telling him there being only three of them and him being like, you, you know, there are only three of you and them saying, you want to be the invisible woman? And being like, okay. And um, them being like, them saying something being like, okay, we'll disappear. And him just oh. sitting, and him just sitting down and fuming because Sue Storm arguably has the best power set of the team. Yes, and she knows judo. Don't let Stanley tell you otherwise. Um, yeah, but specifically having having the thing that like really offends him in that context be 
the strategic short-sightedness of that. Right, right, right. I, I that that is kind of amazing. Um, well, I definitely have for someone who like doesn't read Fantastic Four comics except for when very specific people are writing them. I have lots of <laughs> Fantastic Four feelings about how they operate and work, but yeah. you know, predominantly sort of like looking at the Jack Kirby stuff, of course. Um, yeah, I, I, so I really enjoyed this and I was really excited to just like see someone, you know, from like the deepest of critical perspectives, like coming in and working on on x-men in that way so i encourage folks to uh check out the comic if you haven't it is now on the marvel app so anyone can get a hold of it or get it from your local comic book shop right away and the other marvel adjacent project that you were working on i've been working on is the uh cereal box thor metal god stories what what is cereal box okay so that is that is that is over that that wrapped up I think at the very beginning of 2020. Um, so mm. Serial Box is a publisher that does audio first serialized fiction. So it's not it's not audio dramas. It's it's prose like a novel, but it's it's presented first as an audio serial, um, like like an audiobook. Right. And um, they're written in a lot like TV shows. You have you have a writer you have a, le- a lead writer, but you also have a writer's room. And you, we spent you know three days <laughs> locked in a conference room coming up with details and dividing up chapters and then then each wrote specific chapters and then all edited together. That's really neat. So Thor Metal Gods is is set in, is 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 the Thor novel of their Marvel Marvel novels or just sort of a Thor and Loki novel. And it is a space adventure. Um I sort of think of it as the narrative equivalent of a really intense power ballad. Like it's it's that kind of fun and over the top. Which makes a lot of sense for a Thor theme at all, of course. Yeah, and it was it was so fun to work on. Like it was with a tremendously fantastic group of people. So Aaron Stewart on, Yun Ha Lee, Brian Keane, and this and and you know with, with Alex DeCampi initially editing and ultimately producing. And it was it it was just, it was, oh, it was so fun to write. Like, honestly, if I could, if I could have my pick of Marvel comics to, to work on, it would, I would definitely, definitely go straight for the Thor and Loki stuff, just because those characters have such distinct voices, and they inhabit and come from genres that play really beautifully and conflict really beautifully with standard superhero tropes. Because of the mythology, the specifically the specific weirdness of Norse mythology as well, I imagine. Yeah, but like with Thor, for instance, you've got a character who basically comes from a world where Norse epics are true, where that's his life, where those are the rules that have applied to him thus far, who assumes not just based on ego, but based on experience that he's always the hero and he's the protagonist and there are ways that things relate socially and Again, for him, it's it's you know when he comes into the regular world, it's not that he's stupid. Like he's he's been he's thousands of years old, but he's so completely based in and optimized for basically a narrative structure that the rest of the world doesn't move in, 
And so a lot of the most interesting Thor stories are when he comes into conflict with that or when that's challenged. Mm -hmm. And Loki, on the other hand, is a lot of fun because he's the character who recognizes that and can use it and can manipulate it, but still can't quite break free of it. That's a really cool dynamic. And also, they're just, they they are my sassy trash sons, and I love them. (laughs) Well... You know, the thing with the the audio doing an audio format superhero story is so interesting because it completely inverts, you know, the focus of, of comics. Like you're switching something from being a visual first medium to being an audio first medium. Yeah, it was weird. Figuring out what we needed to, to describe was interesting, too. Because we were we were doing this 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 you know this big space opera, so we had a lot of aliens and we had a lot of alien landscapes and surfaces and a lot of things that we were used to seeing but not really having to articulate the details of. Right. Did at any point anybody feel compelled to describe somebody wearing a large number of pouches? Oh, man, I'm trying to remember. I don't think there were many pouches. Hmm. So I see the 90s didn't happen. Interesting. Well, or we this, was, this was, you know, not in the 90s. It's, it, this is... This is this is one of those stories that kind of exists at an outside tangent to any other chronology. So there's there's no particular effort to make it fit comics or make it fit movies, but it doesn't break the continuity of either either. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a it's a cool project, and and um, it was exciting to see it's like such a really great line of of people working on it as well. So. Yeah, it was and, uh, it was really really fun to do. It's I and the the dynamic of working in a writer's room like that was tremendous. Like I would I would love to to do that kind of collaboration again. It was it was just untouchably cool. Well, I'm certainly hoping for that. I I hear you might have something that you may not be able to elaborate on coming up perhaps. I do. I am I am working on another thing. Um I think I can say that it is a Marvel thing and I'm pretty sure that that's all I can say about it if anything. <laughs> I that's don't so know exactly when it's me. coming out, and um, that's all. So in the interest of not risking you spoiling anything, my my conversation question to you would be, if you were given the opportunity to do a Marvel Snapshots type uh, one-off comic about a DC character, who would you want to give them, who would you want to give the Snapshots treatment of to? Oh, damn. That's a really good question. An important thing to know before I answer this is that it's not that I'm not a DC fan, but the Marvel Universe is really big and I'm a really big Marvel fan. So my my DC Universe is kind of a curated cross-section of it. Like, I, I, mm-hmm. I know the cartoons really well. I know Starman really well. And a couple other sort of one-off bits and pieces of things, a lot of the Vertigo Universe some of the milestone stuff, but those much, much more patchily. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if I could, if I could pick any character, I, and they would never ever give this to me because I think I think there's actually something contractually saying that James Robinson has to get to do this. But I would, I would absolutely go for Jack Knight. Oh, okay, like the new Starman. Yeah, who I don't think is Starman anymore. I hope he's not Starman anymore. He retires at the end of the series. <laughs> yeah, I'm unclear on current DC continuity in so many ways. But that's oh, part that's of why I love him. Like he's he's the Starman who is a really good Starman, but like at his soul is an antiques dealer. Hmm. 
And he's got a really complicated relationship to legacy and to, to superhero legacies. Actually, if you're a reader who's just coming into superhero comics, that Starman series, um, written by James Robinson, largely drawn by Tony Harris, and then it switches around um, the last several arcs, is a tremendous point of entry to the DC universe. It's, it's one of my very, very favorites. And I, I can say, that in the weird genealogy of comics, um, I went to, to junior high and high school with, with Chris Conroy, who's now one of the, the senior editors in the Bat Office, and he was the person who turned me on to Starman originally, specifically as a gateway to superheroes. Mm. <laughs> so oh, so wow. um, okay. obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's got some influence or some footing in, in the folks curating the DC universe as it lives now, too. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Otherwise, well, man, a lot of my favorite DC characters, I'm realizing, are ones who have kind of specific writers attached to them who would probably get this gig before I did. So like Renee Montoya, for instance. Totally. Like there, there's no question that that would go to Raka. Um, hmm, gosh, who else? But I think what's interesting about this whole exercise is that in a lot of cases, you would imagine this being, you know, how these one-offs are working. It's not necessarily the person you would most associate with doing something. Like, you know, for example, Jerry Ordway is one of the artists on the uh, Submariner, I believe. And it's like, okay, to the extent that people associate his work with Golden Age stuff, yeah, sure. But on the other hand, I don't think he's ever written Submariner before. Fair point, yeah. Okay, so yeah, um, then those two definitely... Oh, gosh. Hmm. If we're talking about this specifically, you know, from the eye of someone who's not there, I think I would definitely do Stephanie Brown as Robin. I would, yeah, I would think that would be totally. one that I'd really dig. I feel, like, I feel like an outside perspective on that would be, I mean, it would be kind of coming, very much coming full circle for me from, from where I started in comics and the conversations that kind of got me, got me launched into a lot of the more, more critical end of my, my career. But also... It's such a significant sea change when she's got the uniform because more than anything else, I mean, Robin is Batman's heir apparent. Like, Robin has a very specific role in the the kind of chain of succession of Gotham heroes. And there being a female Robin for the first time would probably have ripples within the universe as profound or even more profound than the ones that it had within the the readership. Yeah, totally. I would love to, so like a story is situated around like a girl who like sees Stephanie Brown and her, well, sees Robin and Robin's a girl and is sort of processing that. Yeah. Um, I love it. To get sort of, for for the kind of Cyclops angle of of a character who's later identifiable. And again, I'm working from a limited knowledge. There might be characters who are much better for this at this point. Um, I feel like Tim Drake's kind of an obvious choice. And mm-hmm. uh, let's see, who else? Probably, I'm blanking on her name, Stargirl. Cassie Oh, something. yeah, yeah. Uh, Courtney Whitmore. Courtney. Uh, yes. Everyone's name starts with a C. <laughs> well, like, you can tell that she's a cont- more contemporary character because her name isn't alliterative. Right, right. Or related to birds. <laughs> These are the only options. Um yeah. Well, you know, I, I realized that, like, having you come on a podcast and making you talk about DC Comics is probably, like, breaking the brains of lots no, of No, this is great. This is fun. I like <laughs> this stuff. I don't get to talk about this stuff. I, I, exactly. I, can't, I can't, like, go on and on about how Justice League Unlimited is the best distillation of, of any complicated universe ever created. 
It really is. And I actually, I, my question would be, why do you think that it succeeded while, where the, the Marvel animated shows have not, like, just been... I mean, this is reductive, but it's better. Yeah. It's yeah. such... Well, first of all, it was building on... It was building on the Batman animated series, which was right. just pitch perfect. I mean, that was coming out at the same time as the X-Men animated series, which is mind-blowing if you put them next to each other. I know. <laughs> like, the Batman animated series made the most of its resources and made the most of the media available to it in ways that very, very few cartoons... Um, in that era did. Like, Bruce Timm's art is gorgeous and iconic, but it's also very, very, very well suited to, again, limited budget, um, limited resource, and at that time, not really computer-based animation. Mm -hmm. And so you've got this show that's just iconic, that's setting the bar. And so what you're basically doing with Justice League is just expanding the scope of it. You're taking the audience that's already there. Because by the time Justice League was coming out, Batman had been going on for a while. I think the Superman-Batman adventures had been going on for a while. So it was yeah, kind of a natural growth and evolution of that line. And then Young Justice sort of spun out of that. God, they're so good. They are. Mm. They're amazing. They're just, they're, they're so, so good. I, I, I think that yeah, you're right. Like, there's a core quality difference. And I also think that, like, the audience, the age level of the audience that's being written for with Justice League Unlimited in particular is they're not trying to talk to young kids. And with Batman and the original animated series was originally a primetime animated show as well. So it was it was designed for an audience that was going to be, you know, families of all adults and kids together watching it. It's also um, not trying to be the comics. And the X-Men show was... I, so I, I, I should also qualify that I saw both of these shows or all of these shows for the first time as an adult. So I, I have no, ah. no childhood nostalgia attached to any of them. Um, the X-Men show was incredibly, incredibly ambitious. It was trying to directly translate some very complex stories and arcs, often as they were coming out in comics, so kind of guessing where they were going to go. And that's, I think, the source of some of its messiness. The Batman, Batman the Animated Series and then Justice League are much more tightly focused. And Justice League especially, while it's got two and three part episodes, its arcs are very self-contained and often its episodes are. There's a limited mm -hmm. focus, there are limited numbers of characters in the four, and instead of being sort of this, this, this diluted reflection of the comics, it's very much its own universe. Like, I don't... I, if I'm watching the X-Men animated series, it really helps if I've read the comics. I mean, I don't need to have, but there's going to be a lot that's going to go over my head. Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, like I said, apart from Starman, were pretty much my point of entry into DC superheroes. And I know who a lot of these characters are. I know sort of fundamental central details about them. But I don't know a lot of the big continuity stuff because of that. And I haven't needed to. Because you've got right. these, you know, there, there's a concept, I think, that originally came from TV tropes of, of adaptation dilution versus adaptation distillation. And X-Men isn't quite either. I think X-Men is kind of its own weird animal in that, in that comparison. But Justice League and Batman are very much distillation. They're, they're choosing a focus, choosing a direction, choosing a feel. 
and really, really committing to them, and then really, really tailoring the stories that they're telling to the medium and to the characters and to that focus. Sorry, I'm yeah. a huge nerd about adaptation, but that's not obvious. No, exactly. That's one of the things which is so interesting about that. Like, um, I mean, you guys just explained how a random, like, Peter Milligan and, like, Klaus Janssen X-Men spinoff series is actually secretly uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Oh, it's absolutely like, yeah. not. We just made that up. It, we thought it was funny. No, but it is. That's what I'm saying. It's an, you've, you, you turned it into an adaptation. I mean, that's 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 mostly the the lit major in me coming out. If there's anything that I learned in a lot of critical theory classes, it's that you you can basically justify any read on any given narrative as long as as you you can you can you know set the angles and the lenses right. Yeah. So that's that's yeah. that's sometimes that's useful and sometimes it's just fun to indulge in as a thought experiment. <laughs> But I was listening to it at the same time I was l- listening to a, um, which I actually stopped listening to. Someone had offered, I feel terrible, but you know what? The chances of the person who worked on this listens to my podcast is like next to zero. Uh, I Someone had said, I someone had shared a link to a, um, a Christmas Carol uh, diehard mashup oh, and uh, teleplay. Um, and they had not combined, they they had done none of the critical work required to have any of it make any sense at all. It was like they just were giving characters different names and there was no significance or symbolism to carry over or anything thematically drawn. So even your like what you may feel was like a half-assed like joke way to approach it is like so much better than this like actual piece of like audio theater. So I mean I, I just like making fun of modern representations of the Victorian era. That is that is one of my weirder joys in life. Yeah, we the folks today do an interesting job. I mean, do, is is it steampunk's fault? No, it's been going on since long before steampunk. Hmm. I guess certainly a lot of you know a lot of the '60s art that references Victorian art is not narrative enough for it to even matter. Like it's literally just like we barred this aesthetic and made it trippy rather than well, even dealing with specific and themes, the- but. Modern portrayals of the Victorian era are based on Victorian portrayals of the Victorian era that were already massively simplifying and romanticizing the era. Like, one of the hallmarks of Victorian literature, of a lot of popular Victorian literature like Dickens, is that it's it's very paid by the word, and it's, it's it's a very specific take, and that's the take that's really informed a lot of modern stuff. Like, I, I would say ninety percent of of modern representations of of the Victorian era in popular media are based on like the movie version of a Christmas Carol that someone saw as a kid. Yep, sounds about right. Or possibly Oliver and Company. Oh God. Um, you definitely have versions of the story where like the experiences of working people are not even. Right. That I, that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed the meme about like what was it? What would you be doing during the Middle Ages? And the person who tweeted Dead. it being like, "Well, it's like murdered by Christians." <laughs> like, yeah, thank you. Um, there's not just like one experience that we would everyone would be able to fit into, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Well, do you remember that horrible couple who were going about about how they 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 just sort of wanted to have been in the Victorian era and be permanent Victorian cosplayers? Yes, I do remember oh, God, that. They were so awful. 
They were so awful, yeah, but it was so fun. It was it was horrible and and hilarious at the same time because it was it was one of those very obvious. You really haven't thought this through, things, but I, yeah, you know, that like, and thing. the thing is, like, I can like literally dress like I literally walked out of the seventies. I don't want to actually literally walk out of the seventies. It's an affectation. Like, you don't have to manifest the, uh, and it's not like it's a shell without any content. You know, I I adore like music and I'm knowledgeable about art from that period, but. I'm not, I don't want to live my life cosplaying as the 70s, even if I do want you to invite me on your show to interview me about such topics or to write critical work about comics from this, etc. Well, and you can, you can enjoy and find inspiration in specific aspects of something or something you associate with the era without generalizing them too. Yeah, exactly. And it can, this is a dangerous thing at times. Yeah, like I, I am, I, I, my, my Victorian author that I, I just sort of grasp onto um is Tennyson. I love Tennyson um because I'm very shallow. And <laughs> but partly because like I love I love the sense of sense of scope that goes into poetry written in an era where humans in that specific culture and language and I'm talking about, you know, in Britain in the Victor in, in Victorian England, because this is the idea that that's, and that tends to be what people mean when they say Victorian too. Like it's it's yeah that's that's a tiny corner of the world, despite its massive massive colonialist reach. Um, but where you have you have this sort of central theme of new awareness of connection to a world and an ecosystem larger than themselves. And just the ways that evolution blew people's minds outside of the scientific community, but also just sort of reframed their senses of their relationships to the universe. Is so yeah. interesting in the sense of wonder and sort of the sense of, of perpetual kind of reframing and questioning that went with that were really cool. I mean, you know, there also is the the way that science was used to justify all different kinds of terrible oppression which like it you know shows you that there's no science that exists outside of like power dynamics right oh yeah literally any discovery in victorian england was immediately used to justify atrocities like there's there's no <laughs> there th i don't think there's any exception to that yeah yeah definitely in the case of technology as well um although here, here's a here's a vaguely comics adjacent question like do you are there particular because you I, I can think of so many comics artists and writers who who work poetry from that period and others into their stories and there's always the moment where you're like are you are you quoting this in a way that's useful and meaningful or is this like covering up for um are you trying to be deep <laughs> and failing you know what i mean like or a slash is this like is this the only book you've read or you know what i mean um i don't know if you have any thoughts about people who've done that well I, I don't remember off the top of my head. I really appreciate when people work the less popular verses of In Memoriam into things. <laughs> so I dig that. A, a tangent from this is there is there is somewhere, I don't know who published this. I don't know when it came out. I have only seen it in print once. John Bolton illustrated a comics format and with just, just with the Christina Rossetti text. But there's there's a a single issue floppy of, of Christina Rossetti's Goblin Market, 
with John Bolton art. It is stunning. And I really wish I could track it down again. That is cool and a worthy use of the poetry. Oh, and I really hate when people make Dickens a really good person in in fictional representations. That that is a thing that will always bug me. Because Dickens (laughs) was an asshole. And he presented himself as, like, the guy who was all about Christmas and all about family while leaving his wife, um, who was raising his, like, 70 children. It was, it's not actually 70, but some, some number of children that was fairly large, even for that time period, um, for, for a much younger actress. And because he had, you know, the social, the social visibility that he did, justifying this in an incredibly shitty, vindictive op-ed about how his wife was really boring and stupid. Good God! Yeah, Dickens was an asshole. Oh, if you're if you're into if you're into like Victorian behind the scenes uh, literary stuff, Parallel Lives by Phyllis Rose is a really interesting book. It's about a bunch of. It's basically about um, well known and invisible Victorian marriages. I want to thank you for 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 joining me and like letting me take this in a number of different weird and storied different directions. Um, but I, I want to bring back to something, which is that uh, you know you're an editor and you're and you're a, a critic, and um, I think a lot of times the importance of critical work gets underplayed in conversations around uh, what is what is valuable in comics fandom, and so I, I I'd love to hear you expand a bit about like how your background in criticism is like central to doing a story like like the one you did so i think it's this is this is gonna sound bizarre but i think i think criticism like writing comics involves an awareness of the end audience that a lot of other approaches don't necessarily or at least the type of criticism that that i write because the role critics really play and the role criticism really plays it's not it's not about when i'm when i'm when i'm writing when i'm writing criticism i'm not writing to the creators and i'm not writing to the publishers i am for the most part writing to the readers or the viewers or whatever depending on you know the medium um mm-hmm. and i'm not writing to say this was good or this was bad or you should do this or you shouldn't do this but i'm writing to to an extent ask leading questions to shape a conversation and to present an inf- a perspective that's in, that, that can be counted on to be informed in some specific ways. You see critics who come from um, creative fields and who work in creative fields. Like, there's a, there's a ton of crossover in every creative field um, between, between, you know, writers and critics or, or whatever's and critics. And the difference i think is that the people who are are very good critics also tend to be people who are interested not only in making good stories but interested in understanding how those stories work and how they interact with the world around them and and with you know the the medium around them and the the history of of the the kind of publishing lands the, the landscape around them in a lot of ways it's it's about putting putting works in 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 context and framing them in context i i I think or i think criticism should be there there are other radically different schools of thought and i'm sure there are going to be a lot of pure aesthetics who are 
who get as as up in arms as I guess anyone gets about that, which is right now not very. <laughs> but yeah. but um, I I think I mean for me, as as a critic, um, I am largely looking at works. For, for me, criticism, the kind of criticism that I write is very much about looking at works in context, which is a perspective that I think often but not always can serve me well as a creator. Um, I, I, I find mm-hmm. that the translation tends to work more in that direction than the other. Especially because with in comics with this shared world that you're writing in, all of the stories exist in context with the other stories in ways that are very explicit and important. Yeah, but also, and I think this is something that I've, I've actually talked about on this podcast before, with superhero comics in particular, there's a point that I always come back to that something G. Willow Wilson said, um, I don't remember where, but like in a casual conversation once, um, which is that comics, superhero comics are among the only forms of popular entertainment that explicitly label heroes and villains. And as such, they are never apolitical. So, and I mean, I think that's true. And I think they, they're, they're a cultural mythology and they're sort of setting themselves up as a cultural mythology in ways that invite and kind of ethically require closer scrutiny than you might give in a lot of other spaces. In terms of how these characters are labeled and their actions significance? Just in terms of, of in terms of the stories, in terms of the ways that the stories interact with the world, you know, in which they're being published, um, the ways in which and they're they're also they're also products of kind of a weird structure and a weird creative structure that isn't entirely unique to them, but is is kind of far off from a lot of the other entertainment that we see and look at. And so I think I think also in writing comics criticism and writing about comics, a lot of what I try to do tends to be contextualizing some of that. Because you see, you see like every year, more than once a year, you see some very big deal literary critic, the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, gives a comic to and says, review this. They only mention the writer. They approach yep. it like it's an illust- like it's illustrated prose fiction, and the review is fucking useless. And we all complain, and we're like, "How did someone get paid to do this thing that we basically get no money to do?" That yeah, we, we all complain at great length because it's them. a bad review because they've given it to a critic who doesn't have an adequate frame of reference to say useful things about it. Yep, and and so I, I think the the marriage between comics criticism and literary criticism and in general between comics and sort of literary publishing and, and those worlds and, and, and the academic studies of those is really uneasy. Like comics is still kind of the weird fringe sibling. And there's, there's a tendency, I think, to conflate excusing it, which is not something that should be necessary, with contextualizing it, which to a great extent is necessary if you're writing to people outside of the limited sphere of, of people already familiar with, with the comics landscape. So, mm-hmm. like, if, if, if I give... I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking about people I can use as examples. I can't use my parents, because now they, they know all this stuff. But um, <laughs> if, I, if I give, like, you know, John Q. Stranger <laughs> a miscellaneous graphic novel, a miscellaneous, even a standalone one-shot story. 
I can't reasonably assume that that person's going to get the same thing out of it because these are these are with with without that landscape and without that background. And right. when you're writing criticism, and I, I feel like an, another thing that I will I will harp on endlessly that I think is incredibly important is accessibility. Because part of what you're also trying to do or should be trying to do when you write criticism is making the tools for critical media literacy available to a wider range of people. And a lot of the people coming in from from more formal backgrounds don't necessarily have those tools when it comes to comics. Like you can't necessarily, unless you're writing for a comic-specific publication, you can't necessarily count on, on, on readers being comics literate in the ways that, that you'd expect people to be. That's something that's really always fascinating. It's a fascinating divide. It's something you see even just in the basics of the medium, in the things that people criticize and the things that people harp on. One of the, one of the really interesting things that's been happening lately is, so I'm, I am, um, with with massive conflict of interest qualifiers because I'm I'm married to the editor the comics editorial director at King Features. I am a huge Mark Trail fan. Um I think I for for mostly mostly um terrible reasons because I, I think it's absolutely hilarious. But there's there's there recently a, but it's it's always been a very realistic, very like one camera limited perspective, not a lot of cartooning comic strip right and there's a new artist right now and she's terrific she's a really good cartoonist but one of the really interesting things in looking at the responses is seeing the specific things that that longtime readers are are questioning are questioning and are confused by or see as as wrong or an error and some of them are just people being assholes because a latino woman touched their stuff like yep. a lot of them are that, but some of them are people who are really genuinely confused by things that for me read as straightforwardly as like the written alphabet at this point. Yep. Yeah. But that aren't necessarily standards in the very specific space of print newspaper comics. Or like just even just Mark Trail. I, I Yeah. The, and I, it's, we, it's fascinating. I, I just because had Jules it, it Rivera did. on the podcast. Okay, actually, so you know, so. she's fantastic. And like yeah. I, I love her Mark Trail, but like there are there are things that I would I would, you know, I come in as, I, I, I look, it's hard to look at this stuff not as an editor. And a lot of, a lot of an editor's job is to look at the stories and the things that, that writers and artists want to do and sort of get a sense of how an audience will perceive that and what will or won't come through and help them, help them basically refine what they're doing so that, that the, the execution and the reception are as true to the, as, as true to the idea as possible. Um, and so, so when there's when there are a lot of criticisms about something in comics or complaints, like one of the questions I always ask myself is, well, would I have noticed that as an editor? And on these, the answer is overwhelmingly no. Like they are not things I would ever have thought of because, but it, because it's it's such a different readership and landscape from anything that I'm really used to working in. Yeah, yeah, they're like, but Mark is using thought speech bubbles instead of thought bu caption bubbles or like stuff like that. And that's or, like, or really why like is Mark's hand so big? It's like, because one point perspective. It's very strange. It's really bizarre. Yeah. You know, but like, 
I, you know, the counter example, though, would be like, so like, you know, my dad, unlike, unlike most people of his generation, was like not a comics person with the exception of being a regular reader of the, uh, the comics in the, in like the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. And um, whenever I try to get him into a comics, like graphic novel or something of that nature, it's always sort of a struggle for him. And I, well, I remember when I sent him sex criminals, he was very happy that we sent him sex criminals because he felt like it reflects well on him as a parent that his kids would send him sex criminals. It really but does, he, yeah. He, it, he couldn't, there's, um, when you, there's like two female characters who both have dark hair and also one of them, you see her in flashback as a child a lot. He couldn't keep track of them. Like he couldn't tell if it was different people, the same people or when she was a kid or when she was an adult. And I was like, oh boy. Like, and you know, like, is this not something that would have occurred to to me? Like, you know, I'm always the first person to complain about same face problems mm-hmm. with the way certain superhero artists work. But, like, that was not going on, actually. No. Chip Zdarsky is, like, fucking awesome and doesn't do that. But it shows you to, like, the extent to which learning how to read and process that, like, process comics as its own medium, even to someone who, like, you know, grew up reading, like, grew up just he didn't grow up reading it, but like, you know, always read the the, the uh, newspaper strips and like, you know, was a huge Doonesbury guy, like still was like, I don't, I, I don't quite understand this. What's happening? Is this well, the same person? I'm confused. No, that's fascinating because I'm thinking Doons- Doonesbury has such stylized faces and characters. But one of the things that's an issue in newspaper comics is, is, you know, when you're, when you're talking about process and how it ties into art, newspaper comics are produced on an incredibly tight schedule. Like, in the same way that comics art is a different skill set than illustration, not only for the technical aspects, but for the fact, but for, but for the, the, the incredibly punishing schedules it involves. And, like, that's God, why yeah. the styles have evolved the way they have. The same is true, but much more so in newspaper comics. And so you get characters who are either really cartoonally, really, really cartoony and really consistently drawn or you get strips where characters don't necessarily have particularly distinctive faces, but like they have one identifying characteristic, mm-hmm. which is something I think of having happened a lot in, in like a lot of the older soap opera strips. Yeah. And which is neither of those would really translate to superhero to, 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 well, to most comic books, but also even things like, like how you read, and I'm, I, I think our generation, yours and mine, had a huge advantage here because we grew up with Calvin and Hobbes Sunday strips. But mm-hmm. how you move between panels and how you know to move between panels and the visual cues you know to follow will be really different if you're a comic strip reader versus a comic book reader. And, and again, I think, I think because Bill Watterson had those enormous half-page Sunday strips and because he did so much format-breaking with them, those of us who, who kind of broke our teeth on Calvin and Hobbes grew up not necessarily more comics literate, but much more flexible re- comics readers. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I've definitely had people say that they thought that um, the, the, the Gillen and McKelvey Wilson uh, Young Avengers is a good comic for teaching people how to read a comic. It is, um, yeah. I think Fun Home is my favorite for that hmm. because it's a comic that works no matter what your readership level is going into it of comics. 
I mean, obviously, you're not going to give it to a seven-year-old, but you're not going to give... Well, you might give a seven-year-old the Young Avengers. Um, but it's, it's extremely easy to follow. But it's also got some of the most intricately constructed and deliberate use of the medium that I've ever seen. So I can give it to, to again, you know, John Q. Passerby, and he'll get the story <laughs> and he'll read it and he'll probably think it's really good because it is. But I can also teach, cl- I, I also use pages from it to teach classes on craft annotation and basically how to break down a specific aspect of a comic and figure out how it works and how you can use it. And like, I can, I can lecture for half an hour to an hour on caption placement in a couple pages of Fun Home. Like it, it, oh, it's that, it's, 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 and, and, and it's, it's that deliberately constructed. And it's not just that it's well done. It's that, that Alison Bechtel has talked about this and is this, this incredibly intricately technical and, and formalist cartoonist. But like, it's something that you can read, have it be your intro to comics, go back to 10 years later with an entirely different frame of reference and read and see aspects of it in a whole new light. And I love that. I love texts that, that, that grow with the reader. Well, speaking of, of John Q. Public on the street, one thing I will t- tell readers is that um, if you have not read an X-Men comic in a long time, uh, Marvel Snapshots will totally work for you. If you have just started reaching, uh, reading Mar- Mar- X-Men stuff as part of the Dawn of X and Hickman stuff, you know, Jay's comic will totally make sense for you. Like, so long as you're somebody who has like a vague sense of what the hell the X-Men are. You actually don't even that really need read. that. Even knowing what the X-Men are. Yeah, I guess that's true. Like, I, it would, it might have less meaning for you, but it is from such a, like, a here's a kid's perspective. That... Yeah, the actual, I mean, you can, you can basically know that the main character eventually grows up to be a superhero. And that's And, and eventually yeah. develops a superpower. Well, that, that actually happens over the course of the story. But, like, I feel like, in theory, you could go into it and not know there was a larger Marvel universe, and it would still be a pretty decently accessible standalone story. Yeah. Yeah, and that's quite a thing to pull, that's for sure. Thank you. Especially and that's, that's right now. I, I I really man, the idea that that things should be accessible is is one that's so defining and important to me. It's a lot of why the podcast started. And I mean there's there's definitely space for an importance of of the the more advanced and more intricate stuff too. But I feel like everything everything should have a door somewhere that's clearly labeled and easy to get open accessibility yeah and that superhero comics especially do themselves no favors when they 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 try to you know gatekeep and set set continuity bars which are again and looping back to you know the victorian stuff such 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 a class-based bar because in terms of access yeah yeah. because of access because because not you know the library there are more and more and more comics in libraries but it's a really expensive hobby for if, if, if you want to make sure that you read everything, even in, even in a specific line. And well, you know, the thing, yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the, while, while there's a lot that I, I, um, God, there's so much that I disagree with Jim Shooter about. I, so much. <laughs> his, his axiom that, that 
that creative teams should remember that every comic might be someone's first. While it's not universally useful or applicable, is I think a really good one to keep in the back of your head when you're creating open-ended, ongoing, serialized work. Yeah. And then conversely, not everything needs an origin story. Like yeah. if you can keep these two separate things going. Uh, Which I feel a enough. little sheepish about because I say that and then I just went and wrote an origin story. <laughs> but, but you were supposed, I mean, yeah, but it, well, I, I don't think anybody had handled the Cyclops origin story in that way. Well, and it, it and, wasn't a Cyclops origin story either. Like it was, it was very specifically, I mean, what it, what it very much actually was, um, was the, the the X metaphor about um, gradually realizing that you're trans. But yeah, like it was, it was the ori- origin story in that regard. Um, but yeah, the, it was important to me that while, while there's, there's a flash forward at the very end that the bulk of the story end before he meets up with the X-Men or any of that stuff or is part of the X-Men, that it's just very, very specifically about this character. And, and I, I guess mean, what, more Scott's yeah. origin story than Cyclops's. I mean, you know, but but speaking of trans identity stuff, like one of the things I'm happy about is that they weren't like, oh, Jay, we're only going to have you do this story about this trans character because, you know, it's right that you need to have trans people writing trans comics. That, you know, like we need to have people who actually know the fuck they're talking about talking doing these things. But the like the way that people get pigeonholed, the people with marginalized identities get pigeonholed and are only asked to weigh in on, contribute on, or like create art about characters that they share that access of identity with is like a real problem. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's an area where having been brought in by Kurt was, was hugely, hugely helpful. And I mean, partly because I know him well enough to be able to say pretty decisively that he doesn't do that bullshit, (laughs) but also because, he, I cannot imagine Marvel really being able to say no to him in this context. Um, even going in and saying, you know, this is, this is a story not about a trans character to which a trans perspective would be helpful. Which is is how part of how he originally pitched it to me. Mm. There's definitely characters who I feel that as well. Like this character, this particular character, like I might not headcanon them as trans, but they, I feel like there are specific things that a trans person might be able to bring to understanding or interpreting it that someone else would not. Yeah, I mean, I think I think ultimately what it comes down to is that there's no such thing as a neutral writer. If if you know if 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 a straight, white, cisgender, non-disabled, non, you know, non-denominationally Protestant, <laughs> trying to think of the, the most, like, the most yeah. U.S. portrayed as generic writer, white brand um, dude. writes yeah. a superhero comic, they are bringing a whole passel of life experience, experiences and biases and perspectives, even aside from those demographic, um, you know, identifiers and signifiers. And, like, the, the things that people identify with and latch on about char- to about characters are going to be really different. And when you have a shared universe, when you have characters who are written by multiple people, one of the huge gifts of that is you get to explore all of those. You have the space to explore all of those. I talk about how Cyclops is my favorite character. Um, I have a lot of friends who hate Cyclops. 
And the great part is we can all absolutely define, you know, and, 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 and argue our versions of the character as canonical ones, because this is a character who's been being written for, you know, going on 70 years. And right. wildly inconsistently from a lot of just different angles and perspectives, which meant that there was something that each of us could latch onto. And if anything, like I, I just I want to see more of that. I want to see more of that breadth. Like it, it, the 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 trans thing hasn't come up a lot in this, but one of one of the things that has come up from a lot of readers is that um, I'm autistic, and the Cyclops I wrote, I I cannot speak to definitive facts about him that are out of my control and in the hands of a, the company that owns the character. I can right. say that the Cyclops I wrote in snapshots is autistic. Um, and one right. of the things that, and the things that I, I fixed on as points of identification with that and that really spoke to me about that were things that, for example, um, Miles, my, my, my ex and also my podcasting partner, who, who also really likes Cyclops as a character, just didn't really pick up on about him because those weren't the things that he was necessarily primed to recognize. So with, with yeah. every new perspective you, come, you bring in, you, you unearth and define kind of new treasures and new angles and new things for readers to to click with. Well, like I've gotten so much out of your interpretations of, you know, Cyclops, like from, you know, prior to writing this comic, just like as a critic and you're speaking about it, like I'm someone who found Cyclops interesting character in the ways that he was boring and <laughs> that like the way that he had constructed himself to need to be that way was sort of put him in the same category. I, I had sort of put him in the same category where I keep like, you know, Daredevil in my mind, where it's like, oh my God, Matt Murdock is the worst, and that's why oh I God, love to read is. about him. Yeah, Matt, I mean, seriously, Matt, just stop, just fucking stop. I, 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 I would you. argue that Matt Murdock's life choices are consistently significantly worse. I, I mean, I, 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 I'm always here to talk about Matt Murdock's per personal choices and how they impact others. Oh around God, him. same. I um, love Daredevil so much for a lot of reasons. Um, some of them are points of personal identification, but some of them is just that he's a glorious train wreck of a man. Yeah, no, I'm like, he definitely some of the characters were like, I, I, I really could have fucking ended up with you. And I'm so glad I didn't. Um, <laughs> but uh, like that, like, like, all of that would have been very easy. I consider myself very wise with my life choices. But prior to reading a lot of your work, like I kind of had Cyclops in that kind of category, for example, like, the first moment where I found him really interesting was when he had his affair with Emma. That's yeah. when I was like, oh, this is interesting. But thanks to you, I actually have this additional you know, like lens of looking at him, like look appreciating the character in terms of the way he interacts us with the world, both as a political actor, as a subtextually, potentially subtextually autistic character, etc. Um, so, you know, like sharing that analysis, like, you know, made made me see other things in, in Cyclops. Um, whereas I just sort of had been like, he's boring and that's interesting to me. Um, and, and in defense so, of that take, yeah. like, now that I've seen the X-Men animated series, I kind of understand why a lot of my peers really dislike or discount Cyclops because, oh my God, he's so boring on it. He's so boring. But, but you but you establish why exactly on your, when you're talking about, you're like, because they had to make him be boring because of they needed Wolverine to always be dynamic. And so you needed to have someone to like have conflict with him. And so therefore they made it Cyclops. Yeah. And he's in, even, even then, like he, they, they managed to, to, give him some really interesting story beats and episodes. They're just kind of the exception rather than the rule. 
But I also generally have always been allergic to being a fan of quote unquote leader guy. Like leader guy characters were like yeah. never my characters. So, yeah. you know, went without saying. Well, and, and so like, I think, you know, your critical work helped us understand the character in a different way. And um, it's like, you know, some of the some of the reasons it's valuable and important for us as fans. Thank so, you so much. I'm really glad to hear that. My last question then would be, as a reader then of the Dawn of X and Hoxpox comics, is there a character who you are reading from that series has made you be like, you know, I never thought I'd give a fuck about XYZ. And now I'm like super interested in XYZ. Like who's a character like that for you from reading this new series? Oh, new series I mean, is. the cheating answer is a character who's new to this world, who is my favorite character in all of Dawn of X, who's Amazing Baby. But, um, uh, I suppose Amazing Baby counts as a character, yeah. Amazing Baby, Baby is perfect, and I, I would fight for his honor. I love him so much. Um, but, <laughs> no, I think, I think the character who I'm really sort of excited to, to dive into more is, is Aurora. Mm. She's, she's yeah. like, Leah Williams is terrifyingly good at, at taking characters who've been kind of discounted or who've been underwritten and and making me like deeply invested in them. She did that um she did that in in Age of X-Men viciously and consistently. <laughs> um and and seeing her take on Aurora who's this character who's been written oof all over the map and all over the map in ways that get retconned as singularly bad representations of mental illness is exciting and also a little scary because like man i already care about a lot of a lot i already care about a lot of characters i have no direct control over like i don't want my heart broken that much more. <laughs> but i yeah that the issue where the issue was it like five or something that's like the big where you have aurora and um uh, a north star you know, really have that reunion moment at the end of the yeah. issue just left the biggest fucking smile on my face. And whenever I think about it, I'm just like, God, that's a great moment. Yes. Oh, God, it's so good. So, yeah, I co-sign there, co-sign there. And I'd never thought about her before. I'd only been like, oh, yeah, North Star is this awesome gay character. And I guess he has a sister or something. It's also the Dawn of X. Dawn of X is also making me like Sage more. Um, she is a character who I find incredibly hit or miss. Like, I have nothing against her as a character, but she's got the Kitty Pride problem of having been consistently written by writers who seem to have crushes on her. Yeah. Um, which is, is something that I, I feel like I'm not fundamentally against but you need to be aware of your own biases and perspective going into that so that it doesn't completely dominate the narrative or the story you're trying to tell. Um, yeah. And yeah, I'm just really enjoying her a lot in, in the current stuff. Cool. Well, normally I end my show by telling my guests to tell listeners where they can find their work online, which of course, in your case, is explaining the X-Men. Yeah. On Jay and Miles, explain the X-Men. Yeah, so that is explainthexmen.com. Um, it's also Explain the X-Men on Twitter and Tumblr, and I believe also on Patreon. I, I use different handles on almost every platform because I am a monster, but I am, I am not lasers on Twitter, 
and postcards from space on Tumblr, and really mostly Twitter is is where I hang my hat on the internet. And and you guys have really built this amazing community of um, of X Men fans in like in your in your like Discord ch- channel space, I guess. And yeah, that's and really even a- just in the in the podcast comments on the website, like it's one of the few places where I'll consistently encourage people to actually read the comics because they're usually really interesting conversations that go off in directions the podcast doesn't. And knowing how to cultivate a space like that is an extremely important skill and one of the reasons why I really need somebody in the progressive movement to hire you for work. I think this is the part where I say that I am in fact currently job hunting. So if you are interested in working with me in any of those capacities, you can find me at those social platforms or um, take a look at my CV and some clips and stuff at editon.wordpress.com slash professional stuff. Because as more and more of our work has become online, knowing how to... uh, create and nurture online communities is more and more important for political organizing. Go hire J motherfuckers. And as for me, I uh, am easy to find on Twitter a little bit too much. E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn is my handle. Elana underscore Brooklyn. Uh, I've also just launched the new Deep Space Dive podcast, which is the queerest, leftist, most Deep Space Nine star trek podcast you will find on the interwebs we just launched our second episode which is about that time that rom quoted marx and formed a labor union in space excellent um, and our first and our first episode is about like wow garrick is really queer let's talk about it um so these are our themes and uh and thank you again for joining me on the show jay thank you to our listeners and as we like to say here keep it geeky